We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. We're in Second Chronicles 9, if you'd take your Bibles there to follow along. This is a fascinating narrative portion of the Old Testament history. It says in chapter 9 of Second Chronicles, Now when the Queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon, she came to Jerusalem to test Solomon with hard questions having a very great retinue, camels that bore spices, gold in abundance, and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she spoke with him about all that was in her heart. So Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing so difficult for Solomon that he could not explain it to her. And when the Queen of Sheba had seen the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his servants, the service of his waiters and their apparel, his cupbearers and their apparel and his entryway by which he went up to the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. Then she said to the king, It was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. However, I did not believe their words until I came and saw with my own eyes. And indeed, the half of the greatness of your wisdom was not told me. You exceed the fame of which I heard. Happy are your men and happy are those you... These, rather, your servants who stand continually before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you, setting you on his throne to be king for the Lord your God, because your God has loved Israel to establish them forever. Therefore, he made you king over them to do justice and righteousness. And she gave the king 120 talents of gold, spices in great abundance and precious stones, There never were any spices such as those the Queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. I just pause there and say, you know, that is a lot of wealth that she imparted to the kingdom of Israel. And, you know, I just wonder, where's all this gold today? You know, it just seemed like the piles upon piles of gold back in the day. Also, the servants of Hiram and the servants of Solomon who brought gold from Ophir brought algum wood and precious stones, and the king made walkways of the algum wood for the house of the Lord and for the king's house. Also, uh, sorry, I lost my place. Also, harps and stringed instruments for singers, and there were none such as these seen before in the land of Judah. Now, King Solomon gave to the queen of Sheba all she desired, whatever she asked, much more than she had brought to the king. So she turned and went to her own country, she and her servants." The weight of gold that came to Solomon yearly was 666 talents of gold, besides what what the traveling merchants and traders brought. And all the kings of Arabia and governors of the country brought gold and silver to Solomon. And King Solomon made 200 large shields of hammered gold. 600 shekels of hammered gold went into each shield. He also made 300 shields of hammered gold. 300 shekels of gold went into each shield. The king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. Moreover, the king made a great throne of ivory and overlaid it with pure gold. The throne had six steps with a footstool of gold, which were fastened to the throne. 
There were armrests on either side of the place of the seat, and two lions stood beside the armrests. Twelve lions stood there, one on each side of the six steps. Nothing like this had been made for any other kingdom. All King Solomon's drinking vessels were gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. Not one was silver, for this was accounted as nothing in the days of Solomon. For the king's ships went to Tarshish with the servants of Hiram. Once every three years the merchant ships came, bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and monkeys. So King Solomon surpassed all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. And all the kings of the earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear the wisdom which God had put in his heart. Each man brought his present, articles of silver and gold, garments, armor, spices, horses, and mules, at a set rate year by year. Solomon had 4,000 stalls for horses and chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king at Jerusalem. So he reigned over all the kings from the river to the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones, and he made cedar trees as abundant as the sycamores which are in the lowland. And they brought horses to Solomon from Egypt and from all lands." Now, the rest of the Acts of Solomon, first and last, are they not written in the book of Nathan the prophet, in the prophecy of Ahijah the Shilonite, and in the visions of Iddo the seer concerning Jeroboam the son of Nebat? Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel 40 years. Then Solomon rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David his father, and Rehoboam his son reigned in his place. Unfortunately, with all of his wisdom, How was he to know that a fool was to take his place on the throne and lead the nation into division? All right, let's turn our Bibles to Matthew 18 then now as we switch gears to share a little bit from the Word in our series in Matthew's Gospel. Just the first five verses of Matthew chapter 18. In this segment, the disciples ask not the greatest question, but it's about greatness. At that time, it says, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them and said, assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. So the disciples begin with a bad question. Yes, there is such a thing as a bad question. Sometimes we say in a class setting, there is no bad question. But I I wonder if maybe that's not quite true. Uh, Certainly here, uh, they ask a bad question. The disciples ask the Lord, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven or who would be? And there might be some reason that they ask this in the sense that back in Matthew chapter 11, remember what the Lord said about John the Baptist? that there's not one born of women greater than John the Baptist. He's the greatest man who lived, basically. But, what? He who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he is. And it should have been clear to them that the idea that the Lord was saying was, you know, in this realm here, the greatest is John the Baptist. But everyone who is bound for the kingdom is going to ratchet up like this so that the lowest in the kingdom down here is greater than John the Baptist was in this life. The conditions are going to be so elevated in the kingdom of heaven that the least 
will be even greater than the greatest was here in this life. And that's a fascinating thought to think about. But if they were using this as a precedent for their asking a question about the greatness issue, uh, they were a little off base. Think of uh, just another kind of illustration of that point. Think of the comparison of someone who is not well off in the United States compared to somebody who's not well off in a third world country. You know, the greatest poor person in a third world country is far underneath where a person in our country is because of the prosperity that God has given, not because we're great or, or you know, smarter or something like that, but because of the grace that God has poured out upon us. That's the kind of idea of that. But they're asking this question, and, and the question echoes other questions that they ask, similar questions. In Mark chapter 9, during their uh, ongoing journey, the disciples had been disputing about who of them would be the greatest. Now, these are adults, remember. These are adults. We might excuse them if they were 10 to 12-year-olds or something like that. You know, I'm better than you and that sort of thing. But that's not what we're dealing with here. We're dealing with people who are uh, trying to determine or figure out who is going to be the greatest. They're having some kind of argument about that. One chapter later in Mark 10 is where James and John ask the Lord for a place of prominence at his right hand and at his left in the kingdom. You remember that? One chapter later. And of course, the other disciples, when they found out about that, they were displeased that uh, James, James and John would do that. Uh, even according to Matthew 20, the mother of James and John was involved in this scheme to get them the place of prominence with the Lord. Uh, and, and that's in Matthew 20, 20 through 28. In that passage, the Lord talks about coming to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He, the greatest of all time. And so we ought to know as Christians, and as the disciples ought to have known if their faith had been stronger, that asking such a question, the mindset behind that question was a worldly mindset. Luke chapter 9. And like in the Matthew passage, this occurs just after the Lord told them that he's going to be betrayed to men and crucified. The disciples did not understand what the Lord was talking about, but they didn't... uh, They didn't hesitate to speak about, well, which one of us is going to be most prominent? I mean, the context is stark. The Lord is saying, look, I'm going to be crucified. And they're over here squabbling about who's going to be the best. They knew how to talk about what was going to be their place of prominence in the kingdom, even though they didn't understand the kingdom. So Jesus, in that context, like this one, took a child and showed the disciples that greatness is what the world esteems as the least. It is the attitude that welcomes children in the name of Christ, not despising them as rugrats. Now, this doesn't mean that if you're kind to children, that by that good work you will be saved. It means that if you treat little ones well for the sake of Christ, for his name's sake, That is welcoming uh, the same thing as welcoming Christ himself as welcoming them. And thus, 
welcoming God. So if you welcome the, the little ones in the name of Christ, you're welcoming Christ. If you welcome Christ, you're welcoming God the Father. And this shows the character that is in your heart as a person, and that character is that which is wrought by God in salvation. That's the kind of character that God is trying to develop in his people. Now, yet another example. That's the third. I'm done, now I'm the fourth example in Luke 22. Um, right after hearing at the Lord at the Last Supper that one of them would betray Jesus, remember how they looked around and they said, you know, who is it? Is it I, Lord? Is it I? Is it I? Right after that, and around the very time the Lord had washed their feet, it says they disputed again about who would be the greatest. Sometimes as humans we have a penchant, a unique ability to pick the worst time to say or do something. And they certainly were doing that. So the Lord once again took the opportunity to teach them and you'll remember these words that this is, this is not how we live. The, he said the, you know, the Gentiles have this kind of structure of benefactors, and then they have those that rule over them. And so he kind of gives this hierarchical view of life. The world thinks that way. They want to be the kings, the queens, the princes, and the princesses. They want to be the uh, administrators in the kingdom. They want to be in the power places of power in the government. They want to be at the driver's seat in a large corporation and all of that. They want to climb the ladder, always jostling for first place. But for God's people, being like the youngest, being the best servant leads to greatness, he teaches them. Paradoxically, uh, the world thinks, hey, the the executive sitting at the table, well-dressed with all the nice finery around him, is, is, is great while his servant is just his servant. But God looks at it the other way around. Greatness is in that servant, in his service. So it's actually the reverse of how the world looks at it. And then in Matthew 23, the Lord says that the greatest will be the servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The disciples ask who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, evidencing a mindset which is just like the world. In Acts chapter 8, you have a guy who is named Simon the Sorcerer. And the people there were amazed at his uh, seemingly miraculous works that he did, of course, empowered by Satan. And they called this man the great power of God. He wasn't a great power. He wasn't a great power of God, but they, they took him that way. Uh, today, some business and, and civic leaders are involved in satanic stuff as well. And I would not doubt that that's part of the reason why they have achieved a level of greatness, because they have sold their souls to the devil. Others uh, are just good at what they do, whether it's business or politics, and so they uh, don't have the devil underpinning their work, but yet they're still chasing after this kind of greatness. In Acts 12, you remember the story about uh, Herod Agrippa who was uh, at odds with some people, and he went and made an oration to them. And what did they say to him? They said, the voice of a God and not of a man. And it tells us in the text that he refused to give God glory, thus really blaspheming by taking what belongs to God for himself, and God struck him down. 
he wanted to be the greatest. And perhaps the people there were currying favor with him by using the kind of buttering up technique of, of claiming that he's some great thing, and they wanted to do that in order to get something they wanted. But neither the Simon situation nor the Herod Agrippa situation turned out very well, did it? Herod died, Simon was cast out and shown to be a false believer. I suspect that these portions are repeated in Scripture because we have also our own problems with seeking after greatness. We want the top spot in our own little world. Our flesh wants a mention. Well, say from in the church, we want a mention from the pulpit or we want special recognition, and if we do not get it, we're upset. Have you ever had that happen before? You want special recognition and you are upset. Why are you upset? Because of your pride. That's why you're upset. You need to abandon that pride. You need to recognize that you are a servant, as some have recently been fond of saying. You know, it's, it's fine to be a servant, but when people start treating you like a servant, that's when your real attitude comes out. You know, how do you react when people treat you as a servant? Not just when you theoretically say, oh yeah, I want to be a servant because that's where greatness is. We want to be in first place. We want to be the greatest. We want all the glories of heaven, of course. We do not want the sufferings of earth that may be required to attain to that glory. So in verse 2, the Lord calls a little child and um, makes uh, use of this child as a teaching tool for the adults. Normally, who teaches whom? The adults teach the children, right? But oftentimes we have recognized that children have a lot to teach adults, and that's the case here. A small child is teaching adults by his or her example. We don't know if it was a boy or if it was a girl. Let's see what does the text say here. That Jesus called a little child to him, to, that's to himself, and set him in the midst of them. Now that word in the original language, set him in the midst of them, is generic. It doesn't really say male or female. It just says, speaking of this little child, the word for child is a neuter uh, gender, so it doesn't say it's a boy or a girl. It just says it's a little child. And so uh, some translations will get rid of the word him instead and say, you know, Jesus called a little child to him and set this one in the midst of them or something generic like that. We're not going to make a big deal about that. It just is what the text is. It doesn't matter if it's a boy or if it's a girl. It's not specific to male or female here. Uh, but greatness in the kingdom, uh, the Lord is going to say, is to be converted and become as little children. And if you don't, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So the way I explain what the Lord is saying here is, first of all, greatness in the kingdom has one major prerequisite. You have to get into the kingdom in the first place. Yes? If you don't get into the kingdom, you're not going to be great in the kingdom. So how, do you, how does he work this? Well, or explain this. He says very clearly, unless you are converted, number one, and become as little children, number two, you will not enter into the kingdom. Of heaven. So first of all, you have to be converted. To be converted means to turn from sin to Christ. Yes, the Lord is using this as a way of expressing the gospel message to his own disciples and to us. We must change from unbelief to belief in him. We must repent and trust in him. We must 
renounce our citizenship in the kingdom of darkness and embrace citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. We must be, as Jesus said, born again. We must be born of water and the Spirit if we are to enter into the kingdom of heaven. In fact, we must have Pharisee exceeding righteousness. Look at Matthew 5.20 or listen to it. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. What I did for this, uh, sorry, what I did for this section of notes was I looked up every verse that talks about entering into the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God. And I'm just going to reproduce uh, some of those for you here. Besides the Matthew 5.20 passage, there's one in Matthew 7.21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Same with Matthew 21.31. Also Matthew 19. This is a a well-known passage about the rich young ruler. Uh, Jesus answered or said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. By the way, just file this away. If somebody ever asks you, is the kingdom of God the same as the kingdom of heaven? Take them to this verse, Matthew 19, 23 and 24, and show them that kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God are parallel here. They are indeed the very same concept. The very same thing is referred to by them. But uh, this tells us that it's very difficult for those with riches to enter into the kingdom of God. May I say, J. Vernon McGee's favorite, favorite statement, may I say, you and I are rich. You and I are rich. We are wealthy people. And so we need to take heed because it is hard for us to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? We have self-sufficiency. Everything we, we need, we have. We have more than we need. If we need something, we ask mom or dad, or we uh, go to the bank and get the money, or use the plastic credit card, and we get it, and it's good. Everything's fine. Money answers all things, you know. And so we have this kind of self-sufficient attitude, and if we have a medical problem, we go to the doctor, and so on and so forth. It's hard for such to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Mark 9, 47 says, And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. And finally, John chapter 3 and verse number 5, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Entering the kingdom of God is a very important prerequisite to being great in that kingdom. But the Lord does not only say you have to be converted, He says you must also become like little children or a little child. So the first part is kind of the focus on turning away from your former life, turning away from sin, that is. In principle, turning away from it, despising that, that kingdom of darkness. But the second part is becoming like a little child, and that focuses on the dependency, the relative innocence the powerlessness of a child, the lowliness, the weakness that a child perfectly symbolizes as he or she trusts in his or her parents. Think about that. Think about a little child. I know, you know, 
Johnny is not a perfect baby, and you know, little Jane is not a perfect child, and you know, not little angels with halos, but relatively speaking, these innocent ones are, I think we can say relatively innocent, but relatively, remember I said that, there's still all of us sinners, and sinners uh, have gone astray from the womb speaking lies, but if you look at the dependency of the child in the relationship with mom and dad, that dependency is what the Lord is making us to understand by way of a parallel. Do you depend on the Lord? Do you have faith in Him to care for you? Are you humble before Him like that, or are you arrogant and brash before him. You think of this, our small children in here, the ones that are still in arms or the ones that are toddling around the church, how dependent they are on their parents. And the first sign of something going wrong, what do they do? <laughs> they turn right around and run to mommy and daddy. And they know that they will be safe there, they will be provided for there, they will be cared for there, everything will be okay. That's like what God wants us to understand. Entering into the kingdom, be converted become like little children, total faithful dependence upon Him. When you are then thus genuinely saved, you become a citizen of that kingdom, and you begin to await its arrival on earth. It's not here yet. We're not in the kingdom. Take a look around. You'll be able to verify by your eyesight, by looking at the news, that we are nowhere near the kingdom of Christ, with Christ ruling on his throne in Jerusalem or anywhere that puts this world in subjection, open subjection to him, the king of kings. We're waiting for its arrival. The transformation that you have experienced brings in your salvation immediate results as we exist in the church and then ongoing results in the far future. We, converted, we were converted in humility and we continue to exhibit that humility before the Lord. Uh, it says in verse 4, Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. One of the results of salvation is that you will humble yourself like a little child. You will possess that dependence and humility that we indicated earlier as a characteristic of a child of God. Then... And only then will you be the great, the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, let me just make a note about that idea, greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I don't think we're talking about a situation where you have a million human beings in the kingdom of heaven. I'm not saying that's the number. I'm just saying, let's say we have a million and you know, you're in the 99th percentile and you're looking down on everybody else underneath you and you're saying, ha, huh, better than all of them. no. There are going to be many places of greatness in the millennial kingdom. Do you know how many places of greatness there will be? Every place where people are ruling and reigning in the name of Christ throughout the whole globe will be greatness. And so it's not just like there's one spot you know, where you ask, well, if I'm not at the right hand or the left hand of the Lord, then you know, fooey on the whole thing. No, that's not the attitude to have. There's greatness all over the show in the kingdom of God. Um, you know, the 12 disciples will rule on 12 thrones over the tribes of Israel. The church saints will rule over the Gentile nations, it seems to me. They will, we will rule and reign with Christ 
over cities and villages and hamlets. We will have places of responsibility. We will have places of responsible service before God. So when they were arguing about who would be the greatest, they were not in the mindset of a good Christian. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been fussing about it. Do you understand the, the mindset of the Christian is we don't even think like that. We don't even think like that. We're, gonna, we're just here to serve the Lord, and wherever he wants to place us to serve him, fine. That will be super. Furthermore, a humble person sees greatness in a different way, not in a ranking kind of greatness, but in a way of service, that the great service that is rendered to the king will be the sign of greatness before the king. Another result of our salvation is given in verse 5, an evidence of it, whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. So one character trait that is in the believer who is humble like this is that they will be tender and caring. You will be receptive toward helping a little child. You know, you might not be called to do that at the moment. You might have passed your little child raising days uh, or working in the, in the you know, the, the school or wherever you were working to help children. You will be that way towards believers as children of God also. You will receive believers in the name of a believer. Now, I take it that the child in this verse 5 is the same as the child in verse 4 and verse 2 and verse 3. It doesn't change definition suddenly from a little person to a little believer. Okay? It's just a, a child. We're not trying to change the definition here and talk about you know, little children in terms of believers now. But the attitude of a believer toward children, tender and caring, would be the attitude of a believer toward other fellow believers as well. Not condescending, of course, but caring and loving. If you receive such in your life, because of the transformation of your character, then you will be, in effect, receiving Christ at the same time. I'll give you a context in judgment, Matthew 25, 40. The king, Jesus, will answer and say to them on, on the right hand, on his right hand, the sheep, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Just like he told Paul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? See, Jesus sees himself in the solidarity with his people. The believer is kind of like a small human child in relation to God. He's not a hardened adult who exhibits a sophisticated skill of jockeying for position over others and wanting more of this or more of that, but he is a dependent person on God. So as I close tonight, what is it that makes a great person? If you want greatness, be a servant. Be lowly. Life is for service, our friends say at Appalachian Bible College, right? Uh, greatness is in service. 1 Corinthians 13 could be used as a, a, a way to describe greatness. What does that text say? It talks about faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is, so you're going to, if you're going to be a great person, you're going to have love. Love serves others. It's exactly what the Lord exhibited when he died for us when he served us and gave himself a ransom for our sins. Such love 
toward God and man is expressed through faith in Christ, being converted with humility, working out toward others in loving service. And this, my friends, is so different than the ways of the world. What do they look for in the world? You know, the, the movers and shakers in the world, how can we influence the world? How can we make it into our own image? How can we get people to follow our one world government? How can we change? How can we influence? How can we give money? How can we, you know, make things better? How can we do things that we want to accomplish? The believer's idea is, how in the world can I serve God? How can I serve others? How can I love others? Christians will not even think to ask if they will be the greatest. They will be pleased. We will be pleased so long as we can serve the living and true God and His Son Christ through the Holy Spirit. That is reward enough right there. And any other reward that the Lord gives to us in His will and His time, well, wonderful. But we're going to let Him do that and not be vying for first place for that is not the attitude of a Christian believer. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us that humility that is like a child, the humility that recognizes we must be converted and we must even ourselves become like little children in our relationship to you so that we could be saved. <clears throat> you request, require rather, repentant faith to be converted and to depend upon you. So we pray you'd help us to do that, not to be all about being number one. Spare us from that prideful attitude. In Jesus' name, amen.